Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, one of your hosts here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by the one the spinsters recommend, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's other artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. As so, Annika, as the one the spinsters recommend, can you reduce my varicose veins? <laughs> can you rebone my corsets, Annika? <laughs> I actually, you will not be surprised to know this. I did have a little booklet at one point about like how to hand make a corset, but I never did it. So you're just gonna have to look elsewhere for a wife with that skill, Michael Fling. <laughs> I wish I could say I was surprised that you possessed such an item. Um. So we have a brand new thing about the pod. We have a sponsor for this episode of the podcast. Special thanks to Community Health Center for sponsoring the podcast and supporting Goodspeed. But, Annika, why don't you remind us what our clue was for what show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode? Well, my clue was that this show had a title song that hit number one on the Billboard single chart. Ending the Beatles' domination of the top slot. They had been there for 14 weeks in a row, and this show knocked it down. And that show would be Hello, Dolly. Woohoo! A book by Michael Stewart and music and lyrics by Jerry Herman, uh, originally directed and choreographed by Gower Champion and produced by the infamous David Merrick, uh, who we will talk about. Uh, and based on Thornton Wilder's The Matchmaker. Yeah, and some other things, which we'll also talk about. So with that, that'll bring us to the speed test. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Hello, Dolly! in one minute. So, Annika, do you have a minute on the clock? Just leave everything to me, I do. Cornelius Barnaby... Vandergelder, go! All right, so we're in Yonkers, New York. It's like very specifically the 1890s. Um, we have Dolly Levi, who is a matchmaker, and she wants to get married to her client, Horace Vandergelder, who is a ha- famous half a millionaire. Uh, so she goes up to Yonkers, and she meets Cornelius and Barnaby, who are his like clerks in the store. He's going to go to New York to get engaged to Irene Malloy, who owns a hat shop, and they're like, we're going to go on an adventure, Barnaby. And so, or uh, that's what Cornelius says. And so then they all go to New York, of course, Cornelius and Barnaby meet Irene and her assistant, um, uh, Minnie Faye, who they quickly pair off and Horace is left single. Dolly comes up with a very fabulous plan to get him to the Harmonia Gardens restaurant to go on a fake date with one of her other friends, but then she's going to make a grand return to the Harmonia Gardens. Sweep Horace Vandegelder off his feet, which of course he does. Um, and uh, then Horace finds out that his clerks left the store and there's drama ensues, but it all ends happily because they get married. Everyone, everyone gets married. Very nice. Look at that. You got that all right in there. And with some detail, I did not include uh, uh, Ambrose Kemper, the artist, nor the crying Ernestina. Uh, er, Ermengarde, excuse me. Nor the crying crying Ermengarde. um, And then I did mention Ernestina Money a little bit, but not by name. She's the fake date. Um, But yeah, that's, that's basically the plot. Yeah, that's basically the plot. I mean, it's it's not super complicated. There's some interesting questions that come up, but uh, yeah, I think you got it. Tomfoolery ensues. So with that, that'll bring us to Why God, Why? Why God? 
why today where we talk about the big idea of the show what the author's intent was and what message they're trying to communicate so this one is a little bit of a steal and actually ironically uh, a show like hello dolly is the reason i want to wanted to do this segment when we were creating creating the podcast because um, I, I think Hello Dolly does an excellent job of creating an underlying theme that connects all of the characters, um, which is really this, uh, which is really a, a return to life and choosing to live life, not retreating from the human race, rejoining the human race, um, and and having the courage to to love and to look for the positive and the wonderful things in the world. Um, I I have to say I love Hello Dolly um, a lot. It is a show that makes me very emotional, um, both in an excitement, happy way and a joyous way, but also in a it's so joyous and sweet that it makes me cry type way. Um, but it really is because it's about having the courage to choose to love and cho- and choose to love life and live life. Uh, and that is something that every single character, um, every single character can relate to that. Um, Dolly choosing to love again to get married again to go back to harmony gardens barnaby and cornelius choosing to live life and going to new york horace choosing to get married irene malloy ribbons down my back i mean they're all these um i want to say uh happy pride closeted folks who have been like not really pride but uh the joke being closeted they're all people who have been um removed from society on a certain level and this is their um their debut back uh and their their rejoining of the human race i just said the same thing five times but annika uh what what about you what do you think the big idea behind hello dolly is uh well first of all i want to say that there is a character who actually literally comes out of the closet in this show (laughs) there is also that happy pride everyone (laughs) (laughs) um although i think it's fair to say that's not subtext although i guess (laughs) not I mean, there are boas, there are feathers involved. It's a bit it's a flamboyant musical. Yeah, there's there's a there's a different production that you could go <laughs> go to with this. Um, yeah, I think that's spot on. I think it really is about that very much um, about connecting with your fellow humans, about kind of having the courage to step outside of your comfort zone and uh, risk being hurt and risk not knowing what is going to happen. Um, in order to live basically life is about putting yourself out there and connecting with other people and um, opening yourself up to love um i think that's all in there it's funny when i was reading it again i was thinking like wow a lot of musicals are about this like i think if there's one theme that you could say most musicals are about it's it's connecting with life and connecting with your fellow human beings and that just is such a such a theme in so many of these shows and i i find that kind of moving and beautiful and um kind of fascinating so yeah that's that's what i would say it is about and also a fabulous entrances but we'll get to that so with that annika why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of hello dolly we can never go back to before why certainly so this is one that actually has a more rich background than i had originally thought so although this is basically adapted from thornton wilder's uh play the matchmaker thornton wilder's play the matchmaker is actually adapted from other things it actually this is like a this is like one of those like russian nesting dolls of of source material because 
Hello Dolly is based on Thornton Wilder's The Matchmaker. The Matchmaker is based on, actually, well, it's an adaptation of an earlier Thornton Wilder play. That, in turn, is based on an Austrian piece that is based on an English piece. So there's just a bunch of stuff. And, and that piece is has its roots in uh, Roman farce. So it's, it's a tale as old as time on some level. But um, let's start in 1835, which is when a play called A Day Well Spent was written by a playwright named John Oxenford. And that was a one-act farce. And it was about two shop boys with a sort of miserly boss. They were called Bolt and Mizzle, uh, who escape from their shop for the day and have a series of adventures. This is actually a play that's available online in its entirety. And uh, you can attempt to read it. I attempted to read it. It's uh, a little tough to read now. It's really, really, the language is really, really funny and kind of old. But um, yeah, so that play was then adapted in 1842, uh, which is seven years later, by the Austrian playwright Johann Nestroy, who is called the Austrian Shakespeare. He's very famous uh, in Austria. And that adaptation was called, oh my God, I'm going to attempt this in German. I do not speak German. This is going to go very badly. Einen Jux wir ersicht machen, I think. It um, sounds off. It sounds awfully good. If that is not how you're supposed to say it, it sounds like that's how it should be said. Good. I mean, I have one Austrian friend who I hope doesn't listen to the podcast and doesn't get in touch with me and go, "What did you do to my, to my homeland's playwright's title?" I um, I think the von Trapps is rendered by Roger Hammerstein are absolutely thrilled with how you pronounced it. So moving on. Oh, there you go. Well, that's what's important. The the <laughs> musical theater Austrians. Um. So anyway, that title translates to he will go on a spree, um, basically. And this really expanded that one-act farce into a three-act farce with music. So it kind of was a sort of musical. Um, and it's actually still pretty popular, it seems. If you look it up, there's a bunch of different productions that are that are done in Europe of this piece in very German style, let me just say. They're all like, the sets are very abstract and colorful and it's all a little bit like avant-garde looking. Um, so uh, that was the inspiration for several different adaptations, including On the Razzle, which is a play by Tom Stoppard that's pretty much an, just a straight adaptation of that play. So that piece, I guess I can't totally say if it's a play or a musical or where it falls, but that piece was brought to New York by uh, Viennese Theater, and Thornton Wilder saw it there um, and decided to turn it into a play called The Merchant of Yonkers in 1938. And it was about Horace Vandergelder and his clerks. It roughly followed the plot of the earlier plays in that the rebellious store clerks escape their miserly boss for a day um, while he is pursuing a courtship. Um, but Wilder added a new character, Dolly Gallagher Levi, a matchmaker. Um, but the play was not successful. It only ran for about 39 performances and was kind of, that was that for a while until 1954, uh, Tyrone Guthrie was running the Edinburgh Festival and encouraged uh, Wilder to bring the piece back, but to make some changes. And he did, uh, including shifting the, shifting the focus to Dolly Levi, instead of it being on Horace Vandergelder as the, as the center of the piece, uh, beefed up her part, added a, a lot more lines for her, a soliloquy, and they ch changed the title to the matchmaker to reflect that. Um, 
And when the play opened in Edinburgh, it was a massive hit and then came to Broadway as already a massive hit. It was just a big hit. So that was where uh, it ended up in the lap of the people who turned it into Hello, Dolly, which I'll let Michael talk about. But I do want to say one thing uh, just to bring it to a real nerdy uh, drama wonk place. So Thornton Wilder was very familiar with classical play forms. Um, and many of the characters in The Matchmaker and in these earlier plays as well, but uh, Thornton Wilder really kind of zhuzhed it up a bit, um, correspond to ancient Roman farcical archetypes in these, uh, these characters like the rich old miser, the young men looking for brides, the sort of ingenue characters. And Dolly Levi is a version of a character type called the parasite, um, which is not quite what we know as a parasite, but it's sort of similar. Para, parasite comes from the Latin para, which means next, and sitos, which means dinner. And it's the character that would always be kind of mooching and trying to scheme to get basically free dinners, which is where that name comes from. Um, you'd sit next to the host to get a free dinner. So in these ancient farces, this character was also kind of, was often sort of a, a negative character, kind of tr constantly trying to get money and, and play people for money. But when she appears in this version, and she was also a marriage broker too, which is interesting. So, uh, but Dolly Levi has kind of been flipped on its head because it's taking this archetypal kind of foolish character and making it this very positive thing, which I think is just sort of fascinating. So actually, Hello Dolly and um, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is also very much based on those Roman farcical types, have a lot in common in their DNA. And I just wanted to throw that nerdy fact on in there before you talk about Hello Dolly. Yeah, but I love that fact. That's why we do this. That's fascinating. And a great, it's a great point in a, in a way that uh, is part of what makes this show so... Um, particular and I and so special I think uh, in many ways I think that that you're you're tapping into um, part of what makes Hello Dolly the sensation that it is um, so that will bring us to our next segment putting it together bit by bit putting it together piece by piece only way to make a work of art where we talk about how the show was created, how it was literally put together. So David Merrick, the powerhouse producer, uh, gets the rights to Thornton Wilder's Matchmaker, um, which uh, he really wanted Gower Champion to direct. Gower Champion had just um, done Bye Bye Birdie with David Merrick and Michael Stewart, and it was a huge hit, and they were looking for the next big thing. And Gower Champion actually turns him down quite a few times uh, before ultimately accepting it. Um, but he does reach out, um, David Merrick does reach out to Michael Stewart to um, adapt it into a musical. And uh, Stewart writes an entire first draft on a boat on his way to France, which he titles Dolly, a damned exasperating woman, absolutely falls in love with the matchmaker. And uh, interestingly enough, as Annika talked about the journey from Merchant of Yonkers to then the matchmaker, um, Stewart agreed with Wilder's assessment that it really needed to be more about Dolly. And so, Hello Dolly becomes even more about Dolly than even the matchmaker was, which I, I think that trajectory is interesting as um, as we relate also to that final point that you just made, Annika. Um, but they needed someone to write the score. And Stewart really thought that this young composer, Jerry Herman, would be the ideal candidate. He had just uh, opened a show on Broadway called Milk and Honey. Uh, but David Merrick had seen that liked it, thought Jerry Herman was a very talented composer, but didn't think that he was, quote, American enough for, uh, to, for the score of uh, 
this adept for Dolly, a damned exasperating woman. Uh, and so Jerry Herman gets an, an interview basically with David Merrick and, uh, well, and I should say he had that opinion because Milk and Honey was set in Israel and a very, um, uh, had a very ethnic tone about it. So he, he was doubtful of Jerry Herman's, um, Americana sensibility to which Jerry Herman said, are you kidding? I'm the most American thing since apple pie. And over the course of a weekend, a literal weekend, writes four songs to prove to David Merrick that he is the person to take the matchmaker and turn it into the musical that becomes Hello Dolly. And some of the songs that he wrote in that weekend, Put On Your Sunday Clothes, I Put My Hand In, Call On Dolly, and Dancing, uh, which is just all things that remain in the show to this day. Uh, and he had various reasons for, for all of it. Um, put On Your Sunday so put on your Sunday clothes was inspired by the spirit of the period and the clip clopping of horses feet and, and the way that that built. And he claims that it was written in that weekend, exactly as we know it now, it really didn't change uh, from that first, that very first draft. Uh, Colin Dolly and I put my hand in, which were kind of counterpoint pieces to each other. Um, he wanted people to get used to her meddling right off the bat. And Colin Dolly was the counterpoint to that. And then the melodic end of dancing, uh, is uh, is still very much in the show. And there's a little debate as to the other, like the fourth piece that he wrote. Um, different sources have different things. But uh, he took them into the office on David Merrick's office on the Monday and played them and got the, ch got the gig. And Herman says that, that he thinks it was as much about David Merrick being impressed that he turned out four pretty good songs over the course of a weekend more than it so more so than just the quality of the songs themselves. Um, but their next task was they needed to get a star. They needed to get a dolly. Um, and so they started toiling away on the script. Um, and uh, in September of 1961, uh, they approached Ethel Merman. Uh, to star as Dolly. They have been building the show around her, thinking that she would say yes. She was under contract to David Merrick at the time, between the country and Gypsy. Um, but Ethel Merman, uh, on a phone call, uh, on a fateful phone call uh, with David Merrick, uh, announces that she really doesn't want to do a Broadway show ever again. She wants to stop performing. Um, and uh, that was a real blow to them because they'd been building the show around her. So eventually we get back to uh, Gower Champion eventually uh, accepts the offer to um, direct uh, and choreograph Hello Dolly after uh, a young lad by the name of Hal Prince uh, turned it down because he really wanted to cut this song that they had written called Hello Dolly, um, which is, you know, he said he would do it if they cut that song. And they're like, you're crazy. Even though at that point, it was not the title number, to be clear. Well, and didn't he also have a sort of dramaturgical problem with the fact that all these waiters are like, oh, we're so glad to have you back. And like, there's never a real explanation as to why they're so happy to have this, like, what, why, why she's such a like, great thing to them. I suspect that that's why. Um, because uh, why would you really want to cut that number? Um, but who knows? What I read, it was not specified as as to why he wanted to cut it, but I suspect that has something to do with it. Um, so Gower Champion uh, suggests this uh, character actors by the name of Carol Channing as a very offbeat idea uh, to play Dolly Levi. So they actually all go see her in a production of The Millionaires, a George Bernard Shaw play. Uh, and Jerry Herman was really nervous because he was going to have to rewrite like half. If they picked her, 
Uh, he was going to have to rewrite half the score for her because it had all been written with Ethel Merman's belt in mind, and they are two very different uh, performers. But they all fall in love with her by the end of this performance, and they get her on board. Uh, and so then they set about actually making the show. Um, they rehearse in New York, actually creating the number Hello, Dolly! on the stage of the Mark Hellinger, which I thought was really kind of a fun Broadway fact. Um, and uh, there's lots of uh, lots and lots and lots of development of the show. There is a song uh, called Penny in My Pocket, which originally ended the first act and was actually a production number um, that was set in Yonkers with um, Horace and Dolly in um, this, the, these businesses that were like failing in Yonkers. And Horace was like, uh, you know, touring around things. And Dolly was like buying things behind his back to like support these uh to support these uh, establishments that were going belly up um, and without him knowing. And uh, which is interesting when you think about where the show ends with the spreading manure money is like manure spread it around kind of thing. Um, and then the second act then opened with a song called damned exasperating woman at that point, the title number, uh, which was a quartet of merchants um, hounding Horace, trying to collect the bills that Dolly had charged in the act one finale. Um, so they go to, their first out-of-town tryout is in New is in Detroit, um, and it really uh, doesn't go well. There's some great production numbers that are working very well, um, but the show is falling flat. It's not not really working. And how this ends up manifesting is the cutting of Penny in My Pocket and Damned Exasperating Woman and subbing in uh, the song Before the Parade Passes By, which was, uh, there's a lot of controversy about that. We'll get to that in a second. Um, and then substituting in the song Elegance at the top of Act 2 to reconnect um, with the subplot of um, Irene, Cornelius, Barnaby, and Minnie Faye. So for their out-of-town tryout in Detroit, uh, things don't really go very well. There are a couple big production numbers that are landing very, very well, um, but it is pretty universally agreed that the show is in trouble. So between David Merrick and Gower Champion, they call both Charles Strauss and Lee Adams, the composers of Bye Bye Birdie, as well as Bob Merrill, the composer of Carnival, two shows that Gower and David Merrick had collaborated on previously, to come to Detroit to help out Jerry Herman uh, with some of the struggles of rewriting the score, basically as show doctors, without telling Jerry Herman that that is what they were doing. But the writers, particularly Charles Stresley Adams, did not know that Jerry was unaware of this. They had asked if Jerry was aware and were told yes. So that was a, a lie to get them to get to come to Detroit. So basically they come to Detroit, there's a little bit of a hubbub about why they're there, um, and Jerry Herman's like, well, you're good friends of mine. As long as you're here, why don't you stay? I'd love to have your thoughts. Um, and basically, uh, Charles Strauss and Lee Adams identified that the end of the act is the problem, that there's a soliloquy uh, in The Matchmaker where Dolly talks about rejoining the human race and says something to the effect of before the parade passes by. That may be a direct quote from that soliloquy. It may not be. Uh, I'm not exactly sure on that, but Charles Strauss and Lee Adams say you should write a song called Before the Parade Passes By, to which um, the creative team is uh, not Jerry Herman. is like, well, we want you to write that song. So Charles Strauss and Lee Adams go back to New York and write a song called Before the Parade Passes By that they then send back to the team who is still out of town. Um, and then they hear that in their second um, out of town tryout in Washington, D.C., 
there is a song in the show now called Before the Parade Passes By, but they really don't get an update um, from the team about whether it's their song or what's happening with it and not even like a thanks. So this actually turns into a lawsuit um, that Charles Strauss and Lee Adams actually own uh, a piece of the song Before the Parade Passes By. Although there were actually three versions of a song to fit that slot, one written by them, one written by Jerry Herman, and another written by Bob Merrill. They ultimately, the creative team ultimately picked the one that Jerry Herman wrote, uh, and he stole the title of the Charles Strauss and Lee Adams song without having heard their version, just took that title and created what we now know as Before the Parade Passes By. The other big kind of ghostwriting thing, and there are lots of um, claims that are made about the ghostwriting of Hello, Dolly. Um, but Bob Merrill did actually write Elegance and did write The Motherhood March, though portions of The Motherhood March have Jerry Herman lyrics in it. There's a little bit of editing and things that go together. But essentially, that those are the big out-of-town tryout changes. So those changes go into the out-of-town when they're in Washington, D.C., uh, and they then go into New York um, with uh, a little bit of buzz, but it's an absolute smash. Uh, and actually, after opening, there is a slight adjustment made to the show that I think people aren't really aware of, which I just think is fascinating, that there's a song called Come Be My Butterfly that uh, Jerry Herman actually kind of started as a pull out of his trunk and then turned into Come Be My Butterfly that is supposed to be entertainment at the Harmonia Gardens in Act Two. Basically, though, that turns into the polka contest, into the polka dance. It was kind of a feature for Ambrose um, to, like, prove that he was a nice talent that uh, Horace should be happy, wants to marry uh, his niece, Ermengarde. Um, but that is actually changed to be the polka contest, uh, which um, ends up as the uh, madcap thing that turns into the courtroom and... Uh, and then it only takes a moment. But it, it really is kind of a tumultuous creation process that um, it, it's kind of shocking what they were able to accomplish considering uh, the stress they were all under and the tensions among the team uh, and and that it opened in New York to such, such success, um, much of which is also credited to the fact that it opened about two months after the Kennedy assassination. So it really was this, um, uh, as we've said, celebration of life and um, love and the good things in the world. Uh, and is pure escapism that uh, really, I think, um, benefited from the uh, horrific tragedy that the, the country had, had just gone through. So it really was a massive hit. It sometimes called the Hamilton of its day, and it had that effect. It just dominated. Um, it also dominated the Tony Awards. It won 10. It really just swept. Uh, it won in almost every category it was nominated in, including Best Musical. Um, funnily enough, its competition was Funny Girl with Barbra Streisand, who would go on to, to star in the movie of Hello, Dolly. So uh, its fate was entwined with her from early on. Um, and that, at the time, was the most uh, Tony Awards won by a single show. It was a tie with the previous record keeper, South Pacific. Um, and that record remained unbroken for 37 years until the producers won 12 Tonys. And then, obviously, that was beaten by Hamilton. But it was a long time that it held that. Um, and for a long time, it also held the title of the longest-running musical. Um, it was uh, the longest-running musical in Broadway history, 
up until that time, uh, beat My Fair Lady, and then it was finally beaten by Fiddler on the Roof. So obviously some some popular names there, but just a huge hit. It grossed twenty seven million. It was just like a biggie, 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 and it went on to have several. I mean, if we get into all the many productions and different versions of it that existed after this time. Um, we will be here for days. It's obviously a very, very popular title, produced a lot, um, really a showcase for great, like strong lead, like women in musical theater, everybody wants to play this part. Um, but just some notable revivals and moments in it. Um, this is kind of fascinating. In uh, 1975, they revived the show starring Pearl Bailey with an all-black production, but that wasn't the first time that that had happened. Um, in 1967, which is really only a few years after it opened, um, Pearl Bailey had stepped in as Dolly in the original production, and then they had completely redone the entire thing with an all-black cast then, including Cab Calloway as Horace. So that was something that they basically... I hadn't realized that that was part of the original production, and then they brought it back in 1975. A lot of stars ended up playing that part. Mary Martin, Ethel Merman came in, and they brought some of her songs back. Like, a lot of women came into it. And if you want to learn more about Pearl Bailey, you should check out Ambassador of Love, our one-woman uh, one tribute uh, concert to uh, Pearl Bailey starring Rashidra Scott, happening at Good Speed Ride River. Get your tickets now. Call the box office. Yes, indeed. Um, really, Pearl Bailey is unfortunately kind of like... I, I, she should be way, way, way more famous um, than I think she is right now. She's really a titanic force in uh, amongst Broadway performers in history. Um, so yeah, so there were a lot of different revivals, a lot of different people, a lot of international productions, um, a celebrated revival in 2017, most, uh, most recently starring Bette Midler um, and uh, David Hyde Pierce. And then- With a reinstated penny in my pocket, I have thoughts. <laughs> yes, the, the reinstated song nobody really asked for, although it's always more delightful to see David Hyde Pierce on a stage. Um, and so anything that gets him on there for slightly longer is great. But um, yeah, it's a big old hit. And then uh, in 1969, uh, Gene Kelly directed a movie version of the show. It was choreographed by Michael Kidd. It starred Barbara Streisand, who was probably a little too young to be playing that part. Um, opposite Walter Matthau, uh, who was probably too old to be playing that part opposite Barbara Streisand. Uh, they famously hated each other. There was a bit of drama on the set in many different ways. Um, and it, it is now, it's funny, it didn't, it wasn't, it was actually like a, started out very strong when it first opened and, and like made a ton of money and then it just tanked over time. Um, and now it has kind of a complicated history. It's not really considered one of the great movies. It it lost a bunch of money for the studio and sometimes is considered the movie that like ended the era of mute, great golden age musicals on screen, which is I think a lot to put on one movie. It's also just personally the movie that I maybe have watched more than any other movie in my entire life because when I was a kid, I think I watched it every single day. I have such a soft spot for that film. But so it's really like this show has a has carved out a very distinct place in history. It also dominated the Billboard charts, as we said in our teaser, um, with the song "Hello Dolly." Louis Armstrong, um, who's also in the movie, it's it's just everywhere. There's a bunch of different versions of it, um, all over the place, and it's truly beloved. One of the great musicals of all time. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's unfair that the movie gets that rep. And it did actually make the top eight of our movie musicals March Madness bracket, which we were surprised by. But I I was very happy because I'm with you. I think it is a lot to place on uh, one movie that I, I just don't think is really fair. Like it did make up, you know, an OK amount of money. It just kind of killed like the road show element of it, which there's a whole book actually written on that. Um, but that is uh, another podcast entirely. So with that, Annika... Why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside elegance? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So let's dive into the song Elegance. This is the top of Act 2, just to give you the context. Cornelius and Barnaby have um, now spent some hours with Irene and Minnie wandering around the town. Uh, they are pretending to be rich playboys fancy aristocrats and at this point the ladies are really tired and they want to take a carriage to the fancy restaurant they're going to go to for dinner but these two guys convince them that they should walk and they claim not because it's cheaper of course because they're made of money they're very rich and fancy but because it's the fashionable thing to do and then you get this song which is really a charm song it doesn't have much to do with the plot it really doesn't drive anything forward technically um, but it's really delightful and fun. It gives us a bit more shading on these characters, including a moment that I think could be really valuable for two of them. And it has the added bonus of not requiring a set. You can do it in one in front of the curtain. So uh, the ornate set of the Harmonia Gardens with its big staircase and all the, the fun stuff you need for the waiter's gallop can be prepped behind the curtain while this happens in one. And again, you know, a lot of these shows... Are built this way. They have elements of plot and structure that are just simply to make uh, set changes and such work, which is really amazing when you think of how brilliant these moments are. Um, just you know, creative limitations sometimes are great. So anyway, let's get started. And I'm look. I'm listening to the original cast recording, although there are many good recordings, and I'm very partial also to the movie. But uh, this is the original and. What a character group of voices, truly, uh, in this number particularly. So let's dive in. Yes, New York, it's really us, Barnaby and Cornelius. So right off the bat, we get this really fun, kind of lopsided vamp. It sounds like a cakewalk um, to introduce the song. It's very engaging. Immediately, you're just hooked in. But there's also something just delightfully kind of off about it. The rhythm of it is a little askew. Um, and when you think about the word and the concept elegance, what you think of is something graceful and smooth. Uh, and this is really the opposite of that. So even in this vamp, they're setting out the premise of the song and the comedy in the contrast that these ungainly, not aristocratic at all, um, kind of gangly guys who don't know anything about the world uh, are just finally escaped for one single day from their from their s store uh, in Yonkers trying to pretend that they're fancy elegant people so so already we're set up for something and already we're working with a, a very rich comedic setup which is the thing that they are going to claim to be is going to be undercut even by the first vamp of this moment and then we get this really fun lyric, yes, New York, it's really us, Barnaby and Cornelius, which is, I mean, we'll, we'll get into some of these rhymes, but man, they're so good. 
Um, and it's funny, as they're saying it as though all of New York society has been waiting for them, which of course we know is not true. But it also serves a double purpose because this is kind of real. It's taken forever for them to break away from their lives, to have this one day in New York. So although New York society doesn't care about these two shop clerks, and we know that, um, there is this lovely sense that they are introducing themselves to the city itself. Um, and that is real. So it's based in a kind of honesty, even though it's also based in this complete uh, lie that they're spinning, not very successfully. And of course, ugh, this rhyme, it's really us, Barnaby and Cornelius is just great. And this song especially has a very, very clever use of language and specifically a very joyous use of language. You know, it's, it's not fancy. And there's a difference, you know, it's, it's not, they're not necessarily elegant rhymes, but they're kind of like ballsy, you know, you're like, every time you're just like, whoa, that's, that is amazing. They, they, it comes out of nowhere. It's a clever, um, clever, clever use of lyric, of language. And it, it kind of reflects who these guys are. They're not the fancy, elegant people that they claim to be, but they're just so fun and they have their own real cleverness, their own language, their own joy. We just love them. All the guests of Mr. Hackler feeling great and look spectacular. Um, and now we get the two women, we get Irene and Minnie, who ostensibly believe that these two guys are rich playboys, although it's a little bit ambiguous as to whether they buy this. Um, the movie makes it much clearer uh, that they do know the truth. They know that these are not rich playboys. And the show is a little bit more ambiguous about it. Um, I think this song really tips it towards them knowing uh, who these guys are. Also because, you know, I think Irene is not, they're, they're not idiots. And these two guys, even though Dolly has told them that they are such fancy playboys, I think it's pretty clear that these are, these are not uh, the bastions of New York society. But, um, but again, I think you could make the choice in a various different ways, but, uh, we'll see a little bit more about why the song seems to indicate that they, they very much know what's going on. And of course they're introducing themselves as the guests of these two fancy men. But I think that that's part of it, uh, in terms of their, they're playing along. The fact that they're doing this sort of to nobody feels like play acting. You know, like who, it's like they're being interviewed by someone. Well, all the guests of Mr. Hackle are, are feeling great and look spectacular. Like, you know, who are they talking to? They, they're not, this is not how you would behave if you really think that you are out with swells. They're, they're playing along and play is going to be important in this song. And again, we get a great rhyme, Hackle and Spectacular. And this is the first time that the song purposefully uses a wrong word or pronunciation in a rhyme, which heightens the sense that they are not, in fact, the fancy people that they're claiming to be. But again, it's its own kind of cleverness. It's a kind of scrappy cleverness rather than a sort of very erudite, elegant, um, you know, well-educated uh, cleverness. But the fact that they're saying this is just, you know, again, the contrast between what they're pretending to be and what they actually are is, is the comedy in this song. What a knack there is to that acting like a born aristocrat with gut elegance. If you ain't gut elegance, you can never, ever carry it off. So here we get, you know, they kind of admit they're acting like born aristocrats, which you don't really need to do if you are born aristocrats. Um, 
But we also get this fun chorus here, which is closer to a smooth, smooth, graceful line. We've got elegance just on the same line, you know, pulling through, but then tips the hat with ain't, which is, of course, a word that aristocrats don't say. Um, and then we get this great little lopsided coda with you can never, ever carry it off with the emphasis on exactly the wrong part of the word carry, then scooping back down for it off. Just like that vamp at the beginning, it's a little bit jaunty and a little bit off. Um, and sometimes this happens in lyrics when the lyricist is just a bad lyricist and is forcing a rhyme. You get the wrong um, emphasis on the wrong syllable, as they say. Um, but we've already seen such clever rhymes in these lyrics and really brilliant lyrical scansion that this seems very much on purpose. This is not a mistake. But what it's doing is showing that these characters are fundamentally not what they're singing about. Um, you know, the elegant line would have the line running smoothly. And, and the lyrics all perfectly placed exactly where they need to be with the emphasis in, on exactly the right place. But this kind of jagged rhyme points again to their real state and adds to the contrast. Um, it's actually, I mean, I never thought I'd be like, it's, well, whatever, I'm just going to go there. It's like Shakespeare and iambic, iambic pentameter. Um, when you have a Shakespearean line, obviously he uses iambic pentameter. And when that rhythm is broken, it's an indication that you have to look at what that is. There's always a reason why the character is upset. The character is not used to using this kind of language. Whatever it is, um, it's, an, it's a clue for you as the listener to know that something is, is not what it seems. And I think this lyrical scansion is doing exactly the same thing. Exercise your wireless winds tonight. We are out with diamond gyms tonight. Could they be misleading us? Silver spoons were used for feeding us. We got elegance. If you ain't got elegance, you can never, ever carry it off. So first of all, we get this great little dance break uh, with this more highfalutin brass on the taking the higher notes and then this lower kind of oompa, almost burlesque sounding lower brass. Um, it's very kind of like it's broad comedy. It feels a little like wah, wah, you know, um, and again, that that just con heightens the contrast between uh, the idea of elegance and, and what this actually sounds like. Um, and of course, have to shout out the amazing rhyme uh all who are well-bred agree mini buffet has pedigree i mean come on that is that is a top level rhyme um and you get this interesting little moment when mini Fay of all people uh doubts their truth and they jump into insist that they're truly aristocratic but again it's so performative it doesn't really feel like it's based in an actual doubt she's expressing um because she said it out loud and they can hear it and it's a little bit like all right well if she really was unclear on this maybe she would say it in a different way but but there's a lot of ways to play this I think this is a little bit dealer's choice in terms of uh, your director and actors you could play it that both women don't realize that these men are not rich and they will find out later obviously at the restaurant um, but they're completely hoodwinked they think that these really are fancy men um, the downside of that is that Irene they just both kind of seem dumber than I think those characters are. Um, 
Or you could play it that Irene knows what's going really on, but Minnie Fay, who's much younger and more naive, um, maybe hasn't picked up on it, and this is where she's questioning it. Um, or you could play it that they both know and they're both playing along. So I think, you know, each one of those has different implications for the whole plot as a whole, and obviously how you would play this moment here. Um, but isn't that fun that you get to, you get to choose? Don't speak of it, Savoir We reek of it, some were born with rags and patches But we use dollar bills for matches And built kowtows to us J.P. Morgan scrapes and bows to us And now this is fun because now they're all a unit Earlier in the song it was the men singing about how fancy they were and the women saying, oof, we're their guests, we're so fancy. And then um, it's they were on kind of different teams, but now they're all singing it together. And all together, they're spinning this narrative about the, the rich men who kowtow to them and they burn dollar bills for matches. You know, they just these, these kind of larger than life images of what it means to be rich. Um, and it seems to indicate that they're all on the same page and, and that page is basically that they're having a lot of fun. Um, and this is, this is play. This is really like something joyous that they don't get to do normally. Certainly not Barnaby and Cornelius, who, as we've seen, work for Vandergelder pretty much seven days a week and never get to leave. And, um, you know, this is a, this is a day that they've broken free. And now look at what they get to do. They're having a blast to dancing in the street with these women that they've just met a few hours earlier, pretending to be swells and spinning this whole image. Um, Irene certainly doesn't get to do this much because as she said, you know, she can't even wear like ribbons in her hair uh, on her hat because people think that anyone who owns a hat shop is like a loose woman. So she's working in a, in a society that doesn't let her step even little tiny, tiny, tiny centimeter off the path um, or she's gonna be, you know, punished by this world or you know shunned by this world and you know Minnie Faye probably doesn't much either because she's she's a woman and she's young so the fact that they all four of them are getting to just pretend to do this is really fun and special we got elegance we were born with elegance have you noticed when I hold my cup the saucer never moves and the way I keep my pinky up into So now this is kind of fun. Cornelius and Irene get a little moment, uh, which is valuable considering you really don't get to see them alone together at all, or even having a moment together much um, at any point in this show at all. Um, Cornelius jumps in with this new thing. He's It's a new little melody, little bridge here. Um, how refined he is when he's holding a teacup. It goes into that same world of like things that people think rich people do and care about. Um, and Irene totally yes-ands him. Um, yes-anding is a term from, from sketch comedy where somebody uh, says something in a skit and your job is to never say no. You're supposed to just play on top of it. So... You know, if somebody says, well, you know, I'm, I'm the mailman and I've come to get your mail, you go, yes, and I have this here for you. You know, you never go, no, you're not. Um, 
But Irene has totally yes and <laughs> Cornelius here by simply jumping in on top of his image of holding a teacup and the saucer never moves with her pinky is out as they're in this imaginary tea party, um, which is a lot of fun. So it's kind of a cool moment and it's a special moment given that these two will end up together, presumably. I mean, they're going to, at the end of the show, they're together. They're, they're in love by the end of the dinner. So given that there's not a ton of these moments, something like this could be very valuable. And, and if I were directing this, I might use this moment to, to indicate that there's something real between them, to have them take this moment to sort of like look at each other and surprise that they're having this much fun or they're able to riff in this way. a great ending you know they're they're kind of harmonizing with each other jumping on top of each other's harmonies uh just really lovely they really are a foursome at the end of this number and they're having a blast as we can tell and they kind of belong together um it just seems like they've found this power in in this team this little team that they've formed and then we get this great playoff vamp, which sounds like it's straight out of vaudeville. It's the opposite of smooth and elegant. You've got this little dent, which is like so waka waka. I mean, it's really like, you know, you can just kind of imagine the sort of like flapping their knees comedy that people do to that music. Um, and again, it's this last little moment of contrast in this show, which claims to be about elegance, but is... Um, really about these people who are not elegant at all, but actually uh, much more fun for that. So just a blast of a song, just a real delight. And uh, even though, and then of course, we're going to go straight into the Harmonia Gardens, which is elegant. Um, and we're going to play off that theme a little bit more because we're going to have the waiters and the waiters gallop where they're um, both doing these incredibly graceful dance moves and also falling all over the place occasionally. So um, that kind of contrast is really a theme in the show and a constant thing that keeps coming up. And we really get a great moment of it here in this really fantastic song. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with the show, both internal and external. So I'll be totally honest and say, I don't have that many issues with Hello Dolly. I think it's pretty close to, uh, there really aren't, you know, in looking at other shows that I also consider to be like A plus, really great, well, everything, you know, well-made, whatever. There are like book timeline issues. We think about like Music Man has like a timeline issue. Like there are some, like seeing things like that, that like, yeah, the, 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 that that doesn't really exist in Hello Dolly, but I do think that there's a question about the style of Hello Dolly that that has to be contended with uh, when it comes to productions of it. There is a world where you do a very sincere, heartfelt Valentine love story version of Hello Dolly, um, where it only takes a moment is the anthem of the show and gets everyone's heart a pitter patter and is is that is its wally you know essence and there's also the essence of uh 
a true uh, comedian and personality in the role of Dolly and Hello Dolly being the anthem of the show because it's Hello Dolly uh, and one of the great title numbers of all time. But I do think that there's this weird split between farce and Valentine. And I, to answer the, my own question, I think there's a world where you can have your cake and eat it too with the show. I don't think you have to choose one version over the other but I do think it's something you have to be aware of and take into consideration. And it's very often, I think, people are in different productions of Hello, Dolly! in the same production. Um, and so, Annika, I'm kind of curious, where do you come down on the style? We obviously talked about its farcical roots, um, but where do you come down on the, on the style of Hello, Dolly! Beyond the styling of the leading lady, which is your dream wardrobe, moving on. My God, yes. I mean, always. Just give me a staircase and a sequin dress and a big old feather hat, and I'm I'm there. You're talking to the child who told his mother that he knew what his wife was going to wear at his wedding, and she said, "Oh, really?" And I said, "Yes, she will wear either Maria's wedding dress from The Sound of Music or Dolly's dress from Hello Dolly." And I was referring to the movie version, Gold. Happy Pride, everyone. Happy Pride. <laughs> okay, sorry. Back to the question at hand. Although I feel like that's actually a beautiful story that we could tell at our at our work wedding. I mean, truly, because all I wanted to do was wear that gold dress or that wedding dress, and so in some way we were destined to be here together on this podcast. Here we are. Happy Pride, everyone. Happy Pride. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think this is a really interesting question because. I also love this show with my whole heart. I, I just think it's so fantastic. Um, but this is this is kind of the part of it that I sometimes do struggle with a little bit because I do feel like it has uh, a foot in both worlds. And sometimes that's a little bit hard for me to reconcile. Like the thing that I think I, I struggle with sometimes is the actually the love stories of it I feel like they start out as sort of in this kind of more farcical world where these there's elements of these people that are kind of archetypal or a little bit more exaggerated I mean Horace Vandergelder his last name is a reference to like geld which is the German word for money so you get that kind of sense of like they're stand-ins in some way um as much as they are real characters and you know and Dolly right at the top says I'm I'm not going to have a love marriage with him the way I had with my first husband, but he's rich and I want to have that money to spread, to do good works with. So like at the very beginning, she kind of lays out a sort of like, I'm not going to be in love with him. And obviously he's very unlikable for most of the show um, in a curmudgeonly way. I mean, obviously it's like, we're not, that's not a problem. That's who he is. Um, and then at the end, all we really have to indicate that they are a good match is that moment where he says the thing that her ex-husband used to say, which kind of comes out of the blue for that character when he's like, I think you should spread around your money. And you're like, you're keeping your, your, your employees salaries in a safe. Like, what do you mean about like this generous message? So to me, I'm a little bit like with my contemporary 2021 dramaturgy brain, I would love a few more moments in this where you got to see that sort of softer side of, Horace Vandergelder got to see a little bit of what draws these two characters together beyond just this kind of scheme that Dolly has where she's decided that this is going to be the right person for her because he's rich. Um, 
but I, I don't quite see a lot of the actual love thing. And, and same with the, like, Irene Malloy, Cornelius Hackle, all those plots, too. It's a little bit, like, you get a little bit of that old-fashioned musical thing where it's, like, Cornelius is 33, but, like, has never interacted with a woman before, basically. And you're a little bit like, okay, I know we're in that little, that world of, like, these characters kind of almost don't exist before this show in some way. But when he sings this whole thing about it only takes a moment, I'm a little bit like, but what is it that actually draws them to each other beyond like he's the, she's the first woman he's ever looked upon basically. And, and he's fun. I don't know. I mean, like there's a little bit of that problem that I think you have to work past if you're doing this show, which is that they don't really feel like real characters in some ways. And you have to kind of, make us believe that there's something to their their partnerships that is more than just not convenience or or uh lack of other options or new things but like actually we like to think that this is a real uh love story um and there's not a ton that's given to us to actually support those characters being good matches with each other and it's funny one of the conversations we were having before we started recording was about the revival casting and uh you brought up a very good point about the the pairing of the the Horace and Dolly's of the the most recent revival so do you want to just yeah. say that for the podcast so we can chat yeah I mean I so first off I will say I loved the revival it was like one of my favorite things I because I love Hello Dolly and it was at a time the world needed Hello Dolly like it was just and it's Bette Midler and Hello Dolly and then it was Bernadette Peters and Hello Dolly it's perfect um but I I did kind of so the original revival cast was David Hyde Pierce and Bette Midler and then the replacement cast was Bernadette Peters uh, as Dolly and Victor Garber as um, Horace Vandergelder. And I saw both of them. I actually never saw Donna Murphy um, as her, like she, oh, Donna Murphy did the alternate, did like the Tuesday night performances, I think, so that whoever did Dolly only had to do like six shows a week, I think. Um, they didn't actually run eight a week, I don't think. I don't remember. Something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That could be cut. But my point was when I saw it was like, oh, I actually wish that Bette Midler had played opposite Victor Garber. And I wish that David Hyde Pierce had played opposite Bernadette Peters, because I actually feel like those are better matches for each other in the sense that like, uh, there's something about as we we're talking about the style differences, like David Hyde Pierce has a very uh, intellectual warm-hearted kind of spirit about him even though he was a great Horace there was something about the reality that he while it was still a caricature kind of thing there was a, a the three-dimensional portrait of a human being that you were getting from him that you just didn't really get from Victor Garber Victor Garber was much more in a caricature um larger than life kind of uh portrayal in the same way that Bette Midler was a larger than life portrayal. It's Bette Midler as hello as Dolly. Like it, it, it was larger than life. And that's part of what made it so great. Whereas Bernadette Peters comes at everything from the cute and charm angle. And again, a three dimensional uh, rendering of Dolly Levi. And I just thought it would be more interesting to see the two three dimensionals against the two, the other two dimensionals and to see the show be a little more consistent in the style that it was that it was uh, taking with the show because there's something about both of those matches that feel better to me because it's making a choice as opposed to trying to do 
like weirdly mixing um mixing them and not the metaphor but mix and because i do think you can accomplish both with but you've got to be consistent in some way yeah and i think that's a really interesting point because what that suggested to me and i only ever saw bette midler and david hyde pierce um who were both amazing but what's interesting to me about the victor garber bette midler idea is that um, although I adore David Hyde Pierce, national treasure, gem of a person, emanates goodness, which is actually kind of an interesting thing with Horace because you're kind of counteracting a lot of what's in the script, which is him being sort of a straight across the bow curmudgeon. Um, and it's interestingly enough, not the only production that's done that. The Goodspeed one had Tony Sheldon playing that part, who's a similarly kind of sunny human being playing this kind of grouchy part. And it, it is a nice way to sort of counteract that. But... Victor Garber is someone who has a very natural sexiness to him. He's He's got a sexuality that just emanates from him, um, always has. And that's kind of an interesting thing when you think of like this partnership and Bette Midler, who also has a sexiness to her, like the idea of a, of a Dolly and a Horace who are actually kind of sexy people who are attracted to each other is something that to me sounds like a very interesting idea because it would show us something that is bringing them together beyond anything that they are saying. Um, as opposed to, you know, what we, what you get a lot of the time, which is that, you know, this is not a very, I mean, God, I, I feel like now I'm going to get the reputation for just being someone who talks about sex and in, in all these classic shows, but whatever, we're going there. Um, but you know, it's not a show that has a lot of sex in it, and that could be something that could that could counteract that lack of uh, textual uh, basis for them to actually be drawn to each other. Um, but then again, I'm probably overthinking this, and like, it, it's not a show that really asks you to think that deeply about the causes of these things because it has that farcical origin. So you just have to, I think, if you're going to do it, you have to walk that line of. Uh, telling the audience to to take these characters as partially human people, but not to the point where you're actually like starting to think about all these kind of details. Um, you kind of have to accept the show as it is. You can't, in some ways, you have to accept the show that you're going to watch a show and you're going to you have to buy into the universe of the show in order for the show to work. If you're not buying into the universe of it, then I think it becomes a tougher. In, in 2021, in, in a new world, it becomes harder to uh, to buy into the conventions that the show um, deals in, I think, is the way that I would say it. Like, that, because you're right in the sense that, like, it, it's not, um, there are a lot of things that are just kooky and weird about it that we don't really think twice about because of the nature of the show. But if you're not buying into that from the get-go, then... I think that's a problem. Like if you go, if you walk into Hello Dolly ready to be cynical and a curmudgeon about it, you're gonna be validated in that, I think. But if you walk in ready to have a great time and be happy and then I think you're gonna, it's hard to be disappointed by a production of Hello Dolly because there is so much to enjoy and love about it. Yeah, it's, it's a very joyous show. And certainly, I mean, there's elements of it that are just straight up ridiculous plot wise, but, but we accept them because why, who cares? You know, the whole idea that like the, the thing that's going to make Ambrose and Ernestine acceptable as a romantic, as like a, a marriage is that they're going to win a polka contest at a restaurant. It's like, well, what? 
even the concept that like um yeah this restaurant hasn't had turnover in their wait staff in so long and so all these waiters know i mean like that's it's just there are things about that that are like but again i would even say like in that original production like when it visually does a great job of establishing a style um, with the horse that has like legs that are really two dancer legs that are like kicking and clopping. And like, there are lots of things that indicate the style of, of musical comedy that exists in the show without yeah. um, that, that I think make you buy into that universe or slip you a lot that we actually are it's like under um underappreciated artistry and mastery of storytelling that they're in that original production that has then trickled down to subsequent productions um because we talked about um even that like that we obviously both love the movie version i think just leave everything to me which opens the movie version is a much better song than i put my hand in and i, I would love to see I just leave everything to me on stage. I think it, it's such a killer, like, burst of energy. I may, and it was written for Barbara Streisand. It was written because they couldn't do the exact same thing that you can do on stage with I Put My Hand In. Um, but, you know, it launches the story in such big, bold, great, and basically gets everything that you need, except for the Ephraim story, which they then pepper in later. But, like, it gets pretty much everything you need in like three three really entertaining minutes yeah it's great it's such a great number it really is um, and but well but it doesn't yeah. establish the musical comedy element of dolly that like i put my hand in does which i think i put my hand in makes the show feel a little more quaint and a little more dated in a way that just hasn't aged as well as other elements of the show I don't think it's just like, like I say, I would like to see just leave everything to me because I don't think it would destroy the musical comedy aspect. I think it would just launch this Titanic character and story in a very energetic way that um, I think the energy would translate and be helpful to the overall course of the show. Whereas like I put my hand in, it's just a little too dainty and a little too soft for uh, where the rest of the show is going to go. Yeah, I agree. I, I really uh, love Just Leave Everything to Me. Um, also, side note, in honor of Pride, um, every time you say Colin Dolly, I'm thinking that like if I needed a Broadway drag king name, Colin Dolly is going to be my drag king name. Oh, that's a great. That's good. Thank you. Happy Pride, y'all. I'm proud of it. And that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Hello, Dolly. So, at the risk of uh, um, being the most boring, uh, I expect I know your answer, but who is your favorite character in Hello, Dolly, Annika? Ooh, probably the hat with the cherries and the ribbons. Cherries and feathers, <laughs> cherries and feathers, cherries and feathers. I mean, my favorite character is Dolly. How can you How not? Can you not? I... How can you not? Yeah. There's a world in which my favorite character is Irene because I actually think that she's more of a badass than she's allowed to be in this show. Like, she that that first scene like really gets some stuff in there about, you know, her being tired of the way she's perceived and being sick of hats. So I'll give a sort of like definitely side side win to um, Irene, but 
Dolly is just the best. If you say vampire, I'll scream. Um, I, I will, my side win will go to, um, Cornelius because I, I absolutely adore his monologue and I adore it only takes a moment. It will play at my wedding, spoiler alert. And, uh, but also I really love Minnie Faye. Minnie Faye's monologue is so good. That's such, is when it's done well, it's really good. So there, there are lots of characters to love in Hello Dolly, but how can you not answer Dolly? How can you not? I mean, truly. And and we should also say, too, that this is the kind of show where um, even though some of these characters are, like, existing in a slightly confusing realm of reality, like, they're all gifts to actors. I think every one of these parts is the kind of part where you could see a production of Hello, Dolly, and, like, whoever's playing Minnie Faye is the one who, like, steals the show. Or Barnaby. Or, like, any of these parts. They're, they, have, they all have their moment. I love Barnaby's running thing about the whale um just adorable anyway so um yeah it's it's really a fun a fun show in that way so what's your favorite song in hello dolly this is tough because i i just love so many of these songs and specifically i feel like they're so joyous they just explode with joy like they it is hard to not put on one of these songs and just just be so happy and the two that are really vying for I think my favorite are, and specifically in that category, which is just fills me with just joy, joy, joy. Um, I mean, I'm going to, okay, second place, but a close second place for me is um, dancing. I love that song. I think it's so lovely and just sweeping and just makes you want to dance and, and makes me sad that people aren't taught ballroom dancing and that isn't something we can do more. I love it. But number one for me is put on your Sunday clothes. I just, it it just captures that joy of like, get dressed up and go out there and like have a day. And I just love it. I think those are both great. I agree um, that it's hard in this score. This is also like, um, almost like a no skips, swear to God, um, kind of show. <laughs> um, uh, it kind of is like all of the songs are pretty good. All I there are maybe a couple that I'd skip, so I don't think we could swear to God that they're no skips. Um, but uh, because at various times, like I mean, I've already talked about, I love just leave everything to me. I love call on Dolly, just that little like t- I love that. I like I love it. I also have a real soft spot for the motherhood march it's not my favorite but i have a soft spot for it i think my favorite has to be it only takes a moment i just love it it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful song it's a beautiful sentiment um it couples to me with like this also could be like my miscellaneous favorite thing but like the, just the the moment at the end of act one where like Dolly's like, Irene, you're crying. And she looks at her and she says, Dolly, the world is full of wonderful things. I just like, (laughs) come on, it's so lovely and beautiful. I'm like, that's my fake crying voice, but it's so lovely, it's so great. And I like, it's such a simple sentiment, Um, but I, I, but it only takes a moment and and that um, go together for me. So I, I think I have to answer that. With also a shout out to obviously the title number, which is Iconic. Yes, and Elegance, which is also excellent. Well, we'll have a thing there. So, but before we get there, what is your favorite miscellaneous thing about Hello Dolly? Aside from the costumes in the film, (laughs) which I would just wear. Um, 
my favorite thing is I so deeply love, and this is so silly, and I think it's hilarious, and I, I, I love it so much. I love the running joke that Dolly has cards for all of these extremely specific um, things, teaching painters how to dance. And there's just like, like whatever the very specific situation is, she has a card for it and it's totally surreal. And I think it's just hilariously funny and it gets me every single time it happens. It happens a few times in the show and I just, it just kills me every time. So that is my favorite. I couldn't agree more just on loving that is, this is a totally nerdy dramaturg question, but like, is that a Michael Stewart invention? Is that from Thornton Wilder? Who who came up with that bit? You know, I don't know. I have read The Matchmaker. I have uh, but, a long time ago. Yeah, so I, I'd have to go back and look. It doesn't feel... I suspect like, that is not a Thornton Wilder invention. like a Thornton Wilder thing. He's not really known for surreal jokes. But um, feels closer to Bye Bye Birdie than Our Town to me. But <laughs> yeah. my favorite miscellaneous thing is 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 elegance, and it's really a specific part of elegance, which is the fact that the number is built to travel from stage right to stage left and in one to cover to cover basically. So we we're gonna go to the Harmonia Gardens. It's an it's an in one. So we the set is already loaded in, but. I specifically love that the song ends and it's this cute little bop, you know, with our secondary characters. And then they're supposed to re-enter tired from having walked all the way to the Harmonia Gardens. I, few things make me laugh more than, there is only one correct way to stage elegance. And it is from one side of the stage to the other. And then all four of those actors should run upstage of the curtain all the way to the side of the stage they started on and then reemerge tired like the the visual joke of you thinking that they're just like why would they magically re-enter on the side of the stage that they just walked from but to me that is such genius musical comedy and anyone who has them will go from one side of the stage to the other and then re-enter the same side they just exited it's doing it wrong I would put it on my tombstone. I, I will not negotiate on that point. You're doing it wrong. Love you, mean it, XOXO. Have them run around. Method acting, they're tired. I love your very specific thoughts about this. I just I have a lot of passion for this very specific thing. <laughs> As you know, I too have some very strong feelings about jokes that people miss in shows and moments that people miss in shows, so... Okay, now I'm going to throw in another another uh, question to to this um, to this segment, uh, and I'm going to ask you who your dream Dolly Levi is, your dream cast version. Who who are you casting as Dolly? Okay, there's probably so many that I mean, there's so I, many. I, I, I don't think there's a wrong answer because I think you just, the production is going to take their lead from whoever it is. So I kind of think there's no wrong answer here. Well, here's who I will say, because this is someone that I've been a fan of for a long, long time and has recently um, been like, I don't know, had her moment in the spotlight greatly expanded. And I would love to get her on a Broadway stage in a musical. And I think she would be killer at this part. My pick is Katherine Hahn. Okay. I love that. First off, you know, did I tell you my genius casting of Katherine Hahn? 
No. Catherine Hahn needs to play the baker's wife. Oh, Catherine Hahn would be a great baker's wife. She needs to be the baker's wife. She's that's I think that's what she should do. But I take but that's copyright TM trademark Michael Fling. Um trademark Michael Fling idea. Catherine Hahn is the baker's wife. But all that to say, yes, I am all about her on stage. I think she'd be a great dolly. She'd be fabulous. I'm gonna i I'm gonna asterisk this and say you know who was a top contender for the movie adaptation uh, is Julie Andrews because she was like the box office star of the 60s. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's a good idea. Much as I love Julie Andrews, I don't know that that's a good idea. I would still love to see it just to like see what that is. There's like a document that was floating around from like 20th Century Fox of like the list of people that they were considering for the various like parts in... Um, in the movie adaptation and Julie Andrews is smack dab at the top of the list, which is just odd, but I'm throwing that factoid in there. Um, but I, I would love to see Kristen Chenoweth do hello Dolly. I think she would be absolutely sensational because we're putting the caveat that like someone who's already done it can't, can't be the, the person. So love Beth level. She's a genius. I did the show with her and she's absolutely a perfect Dolly. She's absolutely perfect. Um, she's perfect. There is not a better Dolly Levi than Beth Lovell. She's, she's incredible. I cannot say enough good things. But I think Kristen Chenoweth would be fascinating because she has a dynamic personality that is able to charm people, and yet she also can break your heart in an Ephraim monologue. And who doesn't want to see her smile walking down the stairs of the Harmonia Gardens and like tickled to death that all these waiters are dancing with her? So I, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna pick Kristen Chenoweth. That's a good one too. You know who else would be great? Diff- in, a, in a similar, like, uh, sort of slightly different vocal type than usual, but Audra McDonald. Audra would be great. I mean, she, well, she could do everything. I mean, we could just, every show we talk about, we could do that. But she, like, I feel like she hasn't done something that's, like, comedy in a while. I feel like, am I wrong? No, I mean, certainly not to the level that is Dolly. Yeah, and she's... She won her first Tony for playing Carrie Pipperidge. Yes, exactly. I feel like it's time for her to show us the side of herself again. I will also say another, I forgot, this is my other great casting idea for Hello, Dolly. I would love to see Megan Mullally as Dolly with her husband, Nick Offerman, as Horace Vandergelder. Ooh, I like that. I think they'd be stellar. That's a cool idea. Honestly, I think so many people could play Dolly and it would be incredible. Well, it's a, I mean, it's interesting because it's a character with a lot of different shades. Like she's got the kind of like pushy, brassy part where you want someone who's like a powerhouse, but she also like shows a lot of vulnerability. Um, So you got that kind of softer side as well that you could explore. I mean, you want someone who can definitely handle the comedy for sure. But um, other than that, I think there's a, there's a real kind of like spectrum of, of ways you could approach it. And yeah, now I'm just thinking of all the amazing actors who should do it. And that will bring us to our next to last segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. So again, we've been dancing around this point, um, you know, all all episode. But I, I think the place of Hello Dolly is one of the iconic roles for leading ladies in musical theater. And uh, again, one of the final real, like, true musical comedies that we get on Broadway. 
Um, and one of the final, like, Broadway as a centerpiece of American culture um, type shows that um, that really has come to signify Broadway. I mean, beyond just, like, Jerry Herman and it being his major contribution to the, the canon, um, it, it really just has... It has a very special place in the, like, not in a one-off category, because, like, Jerry Herman has other hit shows that he wrote. He's not a one-hit wonder in that way. But when we talk about classic shows, it's like, okay, we go to, like, Raj and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and Bach and Hart. They're, like, the list of, like, teams. And, like, I feel like Jerry Herman is also, like, oh, and Hello, Dolly! Jerry Herman! Like, it, Hello, Dolly! is, like, superseded him, which he actually really is a fan of and likes that... Um, he was a very notoriously anti-press-for-himself kind of um, person, actually, um, which I think is interesting. Like, he didn't even come to see the revival. Um, the very lauded, celebrated revival of his most famous show, he, he didn't even come up to see, which is also because he didn't was not in great health. And, I mean, there are lots of reasons behind that. But uh, I I feel like that is its place in the musical theater. Can't, it's like, it is one of the all-time, no-questioned, great musicals and musical comedies at that and phenomenal role for women. Yeah, that's, that's what I would say too, is uh, just the, to have Dolly Levi in the, in the canon of parts that um, are there for, for women to play on stage is really awesome. She's probably the most high profile comedy role although it's not straight comedy, but like, you know, for a, for a leading lady and, and what a, what a gift to be able to see so many performers take that on. And uh, yeah, as we, as you may have uh, been able to tell from our numerous uh, choices for future dollies, we would love to see it taken on by many others. Well, that concludes our deep dive into Hello Dolly. Um, But before we go, we have to know what comes next. What comes next? Where Annika gives us a clue about the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight. So Annika, what is our clue for our next episode? Well, here's my clue for this show. The fancy actor that they asked to do the voiceover on the TV ad when the show was transferring from off-Broadway to Broadway was already such a fan of the show that he said, don't pay me, just give me house seats to Broadway. And that actor went on to star in the movie adaptation of this show. That is my clue. And it's two in one because you get to guess who the actor is and what the show is. My mind is churning already. Churn away. I can't wait for the brain ice cream that's going to happen. <laughs> Except I know the answer. <laughs> Except for you already know the answer. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's not a secret to Michael Fling. <laughs> Prep for the podcast would be very difficult. We both program the podcast, everyone. It's not just on. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that'll do it for this episode. We will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. 
This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.